The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andy Gauze. He is a currency expert, an expert on the federal budget and the Federal Reserve. Uh, he's written some books, one called Uncle Sam Cooks the Books, and the other one called The Secret World of Money. Welcome to the show, Andy. Uh, thanks for having me, Jordan. Let's do a little bit of your background and your experience uh, leading up to these books and what you offer oh. on your website. Okay, so I'm, I'm basically a paper boy, a frustrated paper boy. Grew up in the late 60s, and my money kept changing. You know, we had silver certificates, then we had U.S. notes. And if you recall, in 1964, they took the silver out of our quarters, which instantly made older quarters worth more. And this led to a fascination that I started uh, pulling on the thread like a cheap sweater, studying monetary history until uh, through my teens. And curiously, right when I reached working age, that period of stagflation from 77 to 80, when the Hunt brothers cornered the supply of silver and gold shot up to nearly $1,000, the period of hyperinflation or stagflation, depending on how you look at it, uh, that, that we had during Jimmy Carter's administration. And this led me really to a pursuit of this whole field, Jordan. I, I just thought um, that's the one thing that unites us all is what we use as money. And I really started to discover startling facts about, you know, the source of money and, and how our government accounts for money. And so this led me to, really, after being told a couple of hundred times I should write a book, I finally did. I sat down and wrote a question and answer book in 1990s. It was published in 1996, The Secret World of Money. And it went into the ins and outs of uh, what money was. Followed that up with a book in 2003, Uncle Sam Cooks the Books which dealt with, you know, things like our budget deficit and our total national debt, which I believe is horrifically understated. And I have a newsletter quarterly that I publish for the company that I work at, SDL Incorporated, gold and silver coins, usgoldcoins.com on the web, and that's our commercial endeavor. So we buy and sell American money. And my study of what money is and what it isn't, and I've come to the hard conclusion that sound money is the only way to protect yourself against uh, ever-increasing inflation. What can people find at AndyGauze.com? Well, there are you know, a lot of back newsletters, a lot of uh, my opinions, <laughs> some uh, audio, some video, um, things that really, the, the facts that led me to come to the conclusion that gold and silver coins are the only money and that everything else is a substitute. So in, in trying to get down to the meat and potatoes, I, I use every teaching tool I, I can come up with. I, you know, of course, there are a few videos, there's some audio, and then there, there's the written word. So it, whichever venue you choose to learn with, I just urge you to get out there and figure out what money is, folks, because you know, without, it, uh, without an understanding of it, you can certainly get yourself into some dark places. All right, we're going to get into some details about all this, but let's kind of start on a broad view. I mean, there were, the, the common perception would be 
the Fed Reserve has saved the economy. We were in really tough shape five years ago. Quantitative easing has brought down interest rates, stimulated the economy. The stock market's hitting all-time highs. Inflation is low. Unemployment's falling. The dollar is getting stronger. Uh, we're the, the, the shining light in a, a sea of problems around the world. And so what's the problem here? Why are you complaining so much? <laughs> I don't know where to start with all of that. I'll tell you, the, the closest analogy I could get is uh, if more people show up at the party than, than there is pizza, you slice the pizza into smaller slices. That's it. And, and this is exactly what we've done by making the dollar worth less. Uh, by putting more of them into circulation, certainly that short-term very stimulative. And and yes, with interest rates at record lows, money is going to be borrowed and speculated in, into the various types of investments. So stock market being one, foreign investment being another. You know, folks have a tendency to gamble when it's uh, when money's cheap, especially those that make a living doing it. So when you look at current interest rates, which are artificially driven to these levels. There's a risk that's being mispriced somewhere, and and the benefit is going to the day traders and the traders who would speculate with borrowed money in the stock market. And certainly the appearance of uh, prosperity is there, and I do see a little bit of new innovation. I love that new Tesla automobile, uh, things of that nature that uh, that are certainly innovation and growth. But for the most part, it's all dilution. You know, we've essentially reduced the substance or the value of the dollar, thereby they put more of them in the circulation so it looks like there's more money. But in reality, it's worth less, and, and that's the, the, hard re- the hard fact. So how is this hurting the average American who would say, well, I can borrow very cheaply. I've got a mortgage for 4%. Uh, my home prices yeah, are rising now, and, and low interest rates benefit borrowers big time. So what, what's wrong with that? The debtor, absolutely. But, you know, the person it hurts, and this is the sad part, uh, you know, 77 million baby boom Americans who worked for the last 30 years and put away dollars at a fixed rate. You know, when I started my first job, I tell the kids now, I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, hey, I used to make a dollar an hour. And, and in fact, I get four silver quarters. You know, that was my wage, if you will. And my four silver quarters had, had a, pr- a purchasing power that if you look at it in these terms today, what would they be worth? Let's see, about 16 bucks. So my dollar an hour in, in 1965 is the equivalent of $16 an hour today. So certainly the working person that's starting a job today at $16 an hour and borrowing money and living into the future, he's okay. But the guy who worked for a dollar an hour and then tried to save that money so that when he reached this retirement age, he wouldn't be a burden on his children and his grandchildren, he's suddenly finding that his money is just not going as far as anticipated. And that, and that's true of anyone who was a worker and a saver, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And now as you reach retirement age, you, re- you recognize, you know, Starbucks is five bucks. The nickel cup of coffee is now five dollars, and that's uh, that's not a good environment to have a fixed supply of money. And so, it's good for the current wage earners and good for debtors, but it's very bad for the savers of this nation, which are the people that worked and saved their money for the last thirty years. If you hear the official Federal Reserve and what's going on in Europe and Japan and China, they say the real problem is deflation. There's no inflation in the system whatsoever. That's just a mirage. They're worried about things going down. That's why they have to stimulate even more. There's probably going to be a quantitative easing program in Europe. Japan has been pushing as hard as possible to create yen. The Chinese are constantly stimulating their economy. We've run five years of quantitative easing. The real problem here is deflation, not inflation. What do you say to that? Oh, absolutely. Listen, if you have three times as much debt as you have money, 
and everyone is constantly on the hunt for that money and in order to pay off existing debt, if you don't have enough money in circulation, naturally you're going to have a deflationary spiral. And that's, that's really what gave us the, the classic crash of 1929, the one everyone remembers. And if you, look, if you read Ben Bernanke's dissertation on the subject, you know, when you get to that point, you have two choices, really. You have that classic deflationary depression where you don't put any more money into circulation. Well, that's it. I'm sorry, guys. I know that you guys owe all this money, but that's all the money there is. You've gathered all of it that you can to pay your bills. Now you can't pay them anymore, so we're going to start liquidating your property. And things get thrown on the market, which, of course, drives <laughs> drives the demand for money even further as other folks want to buy it. And, and sooner or later, you reach an equilibrium. In the 1930s, I think we reached it at about 20 cents on the dollar. So, okay, now you've bottomed out, and all the real property is, is calculated specifically to all the money in circulation, and there's no additional money. And from there, you start with a clean slate. This is the libertarian view of what should, be, should have been done to solve the panic of, of 2007. The, the Ben Bernanke way, and I think it is the correct way, if you have a choice, you know, the lesser of the two evils, was simply, okay, we'll increase the supply of money so that it's possible for everyone to pay what they owe and not be thrown into foreclosure and not have a deflationary depression. Instead, we'll have an inflationary recession. What did we call it in 77? Stagflation. Prices now are only starting to rise. And I disagree with this view that deflation is a problem. Perhaps disinflation, certainly as a result of uh, monetary policy, you mentioned China, and Japan, you know, they just started their quantitative easing program. The problem with the ECB, there's no real central authority. So, Everyone has to get their mind right. I think the Federal Reserve model with a single central bank and all the constituent banks within the United States has to be applied to Europe because each country still has its own central bank that sets individual monetary policy so that the bonds of Greece are worth more or less than the bonds of Italy. All of this will be unified at some point, and, and a single currency will work better in Europe. So you can't really look at their situation and compare it to ours. So if you look as an investor at the situation and you think that the Federal Reserve is doing the wrong thing and the, the, the right thing is not to do quantitative easing and so on, do you bet as an investor on that and say, I'm right, the Fed's wrong, and the markets will come around to my way of thinking eventually? Boy, only if you have unlimited supplies of money and no <laughs> you know, fear of losing it because betting against the Fed I think is a silly, silly mistake. Uh, you know, the ability to print money, most people don't even understand the operations of the Fed. If they did, they might know you want to stick with the trend when, it, when the Fed is involved. And, and this lowering of interest rates, for example, uh, driving down of interest rates through quantitative easing, essentially where the Fed stepped into the marketplace and said, hey, you're holding a 30-year bond of the federal government, and I'll buy it from you and pay you a premium over what it's worth right now. Suddenly, you have new money in your hands. You have to go out and invest it again. This is the hope that the stimulation that comes from quantitative easing brings. But this pile of United States Treasury debt that's been monetized and held in the vaults of the Federal Reserve, the bulk of it is 10 to 20 years out. So there's, there's no chance that that money's going to be paid back anytime in the short term. And for me, when you think of it as a financing mechanism, what could be better? 
So everyone wants to rant about, oh, the Chinese are going to sell their trillion dollars worth of bonds and quickly knock us out of our position as the world reserve currency. Nothing could be further from the truth or, or, or actually more insane. Because the Fed could buy a trillion dollars worth of Chinese debt with newly created money and not even make a dent in the money supply, as evidenced by the $4 trillion that they've put in in the last five years without, again, the perception is still, as you rightly pointed out, that deflation is a risk. That's, you know, it's almost impossible to have a deflationary trend under these circumstances. Because of the stimulation that's going on so much, yes. Okay, we're, we're actually going to take, take a break, Andy. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Andy Gauz. Uh, he's an expert on the federal budget and the Fed Reserve policy and currencies and gold, all kinds of interesting things. Uh, and we'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andy Gauze. Uh, He's written a book called Uncle Sam Cooks the Books and another one called The Secret World of Money. His website is andygauze.com. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Well, thank you, Jordan. So you're basically saying that uh, under the current circumstances with all the quantitative easing that's gone on and the increasing the balance sheet, that uh, deflation is not really possible. Um, no. 
only if the Fed wants deflation. And, you know, if, if this is the curious thing about how they operate, right? <laughs> They're not under the jurisdiction of the Congress or the president. They are a completely independent, autonomous agency. And, in fact, a component of it, in the case of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, is privately owned. That's not even a, a government entity. That's a stock ownership type of a, of a circumstance. So thank goodness for that, because if the Fed decided that they wanted the economy to roar and, the, and they wanted the president to be reelected, then all that they would have to do is lower interest rates to the floor and buy bonds in vigorous quantity. Now, this is very stimulative. Everybody feels good. There's money in circulation everywhere. Well, this Conversely, is exactly what they did. This is exactly what yeah. they did, though, right? They lowered right. rates to the floor and bought a lot of bonds. That's true. Now, see, many would argue that that was not political, but okay. <laughs> we'll set that aside for a minute and look at the converse situation. If you don't want the president in and you want to have him thrown out of office, then you raise interest rates 47 straight times, as Paul Volcker did, and don't do any quantitative easing whatsoever. So, you know, the reverse can be applied just as well. And and it is this for this reason that many think that the Federal Reserve's functions have just gotten too involved in the political system. So monetary policy and politics and statecraft are not supposed to meld. <laughs> They're supposed to be run independently. Given Having said that, looking at the circumstance that we were in, Jordan, the choice was fairly simple. You either allow a general default, which would have caused a deflationary depression, or you amp up the quantitative easing, which is essentially monetizing debt instruments, which there were plenty of. So you take every little debt instrument and you say, what's this say? I owe you a thousand. Here's a thousand. Give me the debt instrument. And this is what the Fed did. And by piling up this $4 trillion in debt instruments and debt, you know, debt obligations, and creating $4 trillion in new money, they staved off an inevitable default and a deflationary depression. Would that have been better than what we're having now? Who would argue that point? Who could, who could rightly say that the right decision would have been to shut off the money supply and say, okay, this is all the money in circulation, deal with it? That would have caused general bankruptcies, massive fall in prices, and I don't think it would have been very good for the typical American that's so, what I think. So, the so you're you're saying, Andy, that they made the right decision. But had you been in yeah, Bernanke's shoes in 2007 or so, I you would have done, done exactly the same thing. You know, I may have done a little differently. Um, you know, the, for the Fed, the TARP program, I disagreed with right out of the box. I I thought that a general income tax holiday would be more stimulative than giving the banks, you know, their money. But at the same time, I understand. Although they pretended otherwise, the banks they were insolvent. And without the direct cash injection of the federal government, they, they wouldn't have been able to continue their functions, no question in my mind. That they took the money that the federal government gave them and bought these mortgage-backed securities and a front-running operation to the Federal Reserve, that, I think, is uh, something that should be looked into. Because if you recall, at the height of the crisis, when Lehman and the others were going under, you had the boys, you know, the owners of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and the crowd were buying mortgage-backed securities from the distressed sellers at like 30 to 40 cents on the dollar. And then, miraculously, the entity that they're in control of, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, is put in charge of buying mortgage-backed securities. Do they try to buy them at a discount? No. 
They buy them at 100 cents on the dollar from those very entities. Now, that, I think, is a little, like, greedy. Sure, they took the profits and then paid back the TARP money. Right, we got our money back. But the tens of billions that the banks made on that maneuver is something that should seriously be looked into. And it's another reason why I think we can't have a private component to that Federal Reserve. It has to be either federal or nothing. So what are the investment implications of what you're saying here? We've got the Federal Reserve has done this quantitative easing for the last five years or so. The balance sheet's increased to over $4 trillion. Uh, they've monetized the debt. Interest rates remain low. We've stopped the deflationary depression. Sounds yeah. like a pretty good environment to invest in stocks. What, what, what are the investment right. implications of what you're talking about here? Yep. Equity. Yeah, equities. Uh, I'll tell you what I wouldn't buy right now, Jordan, are bonds. I don't think new-issue bonds would be a a place that I would put my money. Unfortunately, you know, this is where the average investor puts his money. But I love stocks. You know, I was early on in Apple. I was early on in Google. I'm early on in Tesla. I really think that the the game changers, if you will, in the equity market uh, are, are great to pick. And if you buy an index, you'll probably do fine as well. But the don't keep all your eggs in one basket mentality should definitely come into play here. And anyone who invests in these sorts of equities had better be prepared for something else because there is unfortunately that problem that we've just now started to discover as it relates to institutional trading and this high-frequency trading and the use of leverage to own stocks. You don't have the same strong hands holding stocks that you had in the 1950s or 40s. And with all the leverage and speculation, there are periods when everyone wants to sell at the same time. And you don't want to get caught in one of those downdrafts with at least a little bit of protection, which is what we offer. You know, we say if you have 80 to 85% of your money in stocks, maybe 15% in gold and silver might not be a bad idea. So and, how and, will gold know, and silver, if there's a, a high-frequency trading meltdown, how will your gold and silver help you uh, hedge against that downturn? I think the response to that or anything else that would bring uh, disrepute upon the banking industry would be rounds of further quantitative easing. I think the Fed would immediately ride to the rescue with tremendous liquidity stores to enable these banks to sort of get themselves back on track. That would lead to inflation and, um, and would, of course, benefit gold and silver, especially the type that I deal in, which are American numismatic rarities, coins that have uh, significance above and beyond their actual gold or silver content. So what is the advantage of doing a numismatic over uh, gold bullion? I mean, there's a, a markup for rarity, but uh, oh, yeah. in, general, in general, people tend to buy numismatics at retail, and then they right. have to sell them back at wholesale and cover that exactly. spread. It often doesn't work out well. Oh, no, especially in the short term. And, and uh, you know, I've told many folks, if you're not thinking 10 years or 20 years out, don't even bother buying numismatic coins because you're right. The acquisition costs, the difference between buy and sell, are much greater than in just about any other investment, save maybe real estate. But if you look at, for example, you remember that couple? Did you hear about the couple several, some time ago, found these cans of uh, gold yes. buried in their yes. property in California? Mm-hmm. So if you calculate a face value, it was $27,000. So if you had laid $27,000 in paper money in a can in the same place, that's what you would have today, $27,000. If it would have been gold bullion that they put in that can, it would have been worth a million and a half dollars just to melt the gold out of it. But as numismatic coins, collectible coins, it was worth $10 million. So sure, the spread and the acquisition in all three of those elements, when it happened, the twenty-seven grand to put in a box would have cost you exactly twenty-seven grand. The 
Twenty-seven grand in gold at the time would have probably been about twenty-five thousand. If you would have had to sell the gold instantly, that spread would have been two grand. And the twenty-seven thousand in rare coins, yeah, that would have been maybe ten or fifteen percent. I've even seen spreads as high as twenty percent or more. So the acquisition costs certainly were higher for the numismatic coins when they were purchased. But a hundred twenty years later, I suppose if you're thinking intergenerationally, as, as most ultra wealthy people do then, wow, it was a great investment. It was a perfect thing. Sure, you paid the biggest spread for the numismatic coins, but given the benefit of time, once they start really uh, rolling, that all accrues back to you. If you have a shorter-term period than intergenerational, like five yeah, years or something like that, don't, yeah, I is, wouldn't. is bullion a better way to go than numismatics? Well, if you would have asked me that question in 2011, I would have certainly said numismatics are the way to go. And that would have been in the face of you know, my very rare 1876 $20 gold piece went up 12% in 2010, while bullion went up, what, 35, 45? And, and so the argument could have certainly been made, and it was made in, in very high pitch then, that the thing to buy is gold bullion. But today, you know, that $1,900 one ounce of gold is only worth 1288 while my coin has held its value and it creeped up another 5%. So for me... As an old guy, <laughs> I, you know, I want something I can count on, not something that rolls like a roller coaster, which is what Gold Bullion does due to the, the nature of the electronic trading, shall we say, of a, of a physical commodity. So uh, it's an insurance policy is what you're really saying, the numismatic coin. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And, and you buy something that no one else can own. Like in the case of right now, for example, I sold this morning a proof $2.5 gold piece it was one of 200 minted, 200 coins made in 1894, I believe. Proof condition, it was $8,000. Now, if you melted the gold out of that coin, maybe you got 300 bucks. But this, this, the, 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 the validity of that investment has been borne out over the last 125 years. You know, you could trace a trading history back every single year and see what Solomon Brothers called slow, steady growth. I think they rated a portfolio of uh, high-value numismatic coins, not based on their gold value or their silver value, but collectible coins, at 25.7% per year compounded for 30 years. Boy, you know, give me that. I'll take it's because that. of the, the rarity, not, you're saying, yes, as opposed oh, yeah, to the, the bullion co content. Definitely rare, rare coins. And to be honest, the kind of things that unless you're someone like me who really appreciates the history behind these coins, it takes a lot of guts to buy. It really does. You're the guy that just plunked down $10 million for the first silver dollar. He got At the end of the day, he got an ounce of silver. You know, and he, it was the, the, the fact that he has something that no one else can ever own, something that is hyster historically significant. When Harry Bass bought the only $3 gold piece from 1870 that was made in San Francisco, to this day, it's the only coin ever. And it was $700,000 when he bought it way back in 84. Today, it might be six or seven million, but he'll never sell it. So it's not, it's irrelevant. Okay, very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andy Gauze. Uh, he's written a book called Uncle Sam Cooks the Books and another one called The Secret World of Money. You can see he talks about gold and Fed Reserve. And we'll be back after this to discuss this more. 
the market's up or down. Or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision, and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andy Gauze. Uh, he is an expert on the, the Federal Reserve and currencies and the U.S. dollar and gold. His website is andygauze.com. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Thank you. So let's get into some of the specifics on the federal budget and how uh, this is, uh, you think, out of control. I mean, the official line would be things are getting much better. We used to have a, a deficit of $1.3 trillion. It's going to be down to $500 billion. And uh, on current trends, we might even have a surplus in coming years. Obamacare yeah. is saving a huge amount of money. So the federal budget, it was bad during the recession. But as the employment gets better, as the economy grows, things are getting much, much better. So what's to worry about that? Okay, so I dispute the surplus part. If you remember when, when Franklin Raines was in charge of Bill Clinton's budget office, right, uh, we were told we would see surpluses, uh, what was the quote, as far as the eye could see. And it did take very long for politicians to figure out a way to spend that excess money. Now, the biggest problem that I have, in addition to the balanced budget, is A, we don't recognize our true debt in that we run the federal government on a cash basis instead of an accrual basis. So we ignore things that we owe in outlying years as if we don't owe them. And I think that's, that's not the way a typical American would plan. In fact, you know more about this than I do, but isn't, wouldn't that be illegal if I was a corporation? So what would be some examples that? of things that we owe that are not on the balance sheet today? Take your pick. 
I mean, you besides the off-budget items, of course, the Resolution Trust Corporation has never been fully re- resolved. <laughs> so we still have all the bonds outstanding from the SNL crisis. We've only been paying interest on them all these years through a separate corporation called the Resolution Trust Corporation, which isn't even included on the government's balance sheet. So that right there, I mean, if you just start with something as simple as that, but then you get to all of the 170 trust funds that the federal government maintains, from Social Security to Medicare to Bureau of Indian Lands to, you know, name your trust fund. They have them. Highway, airport, you know, all the taxes that we pay in in, in any form uh, through any, you know, telephones. You have a list of taxes I'm sure you could make without my help. But any direct tax that you pay is put into a trust fund ostensibly to fix the roads, fix the airports, or do whatever it is that the tax is collected for. When in reality, that money is borrowed and the interest is credited to the account each year so that it carries a balance in that it's owed this money, but it's not really counted because that money went into the Treasury as though it were current revenue and counted in the same category as somebody paid their taxes. So, you know, this very single distinction from cash to accrual suggests that we're ignoring that we have to pay back the Social Security Trust Fund. We have to pay back, if we want to fix the roads, the money into the Highway and Airport Trust Fund. And all of the various trust funds that are established are all run the same way. The money is borrowed out, and only payments are made, and that's what's used to, to fix the stated actual result. So what, what is going to be the long term when these things do have to be paid? Or maybe I mean, the argument would be made, they'll just never be paid back. We'll just keep accruing like this forever, and what, what's the problem? Yeah. Well, there, there is that, but, you know, I use the analogy of my dad saving my money for college. I don't know if you had this experience, but every time I did anything and saved a dollar, dad would say, all right, give me half that money. I'm holding on to it for you for college. So by the time it was time for me to go to college, you know, dad owed me on the books about 25 grand. Now, he didn't have it. Obviously, he had been throwing the money I gave him into the budget and just keeping track of what I owed him or what he owed me. Forgive me. Mm-hmm. So, okay, but he's my dad. I trusted him. I knew he was going to do the right thing, and he did. You know what? He gave me back every penny of that twenty-five grand. But trying to get a dollar out of him for a pizza? Forget it, man. He was broker than I was because he was busting his butt to pay back the money that he owed me. This is the same condition that our kids and our grandkids are going to be in as they have to pay back the Social Security recipient. Sure. We borrowed that money, we've got to pay it back, but now it's consuming the majority of our tax revenue. We can't afford to fix our own schools and roads and bridges. And that's, unfortunately, what I see as the resulting consequence. Now, yeah, we can remonetize the debt, what they call that, kick the can down the road, and shift the burden to another generation. But ultimately, I suppose, we want to leave the, the world in better condition for our children, not in worse. And, and that really should be the motivation. How has this worked historically in the past with other countries that have done something similar? Rome, uh, Britain, other places that build up huge debts, uh, in effect monetizing their debts. Rome, because of all of its conquering, and same thing with Britain, kind of conquering the world. How does the story typically end when a similar situation happens in the past? Well, not pretty. You know, we didn't even get into the category of the world reserve currency, which is what, you know, those nations that you mentioned had. Uh, You know, this is a case of, um, a fiat currency, one that has no substance or backing with gold and silver, becoming the reserve currency of the world. It's as if 
it's as if the entire world has agreed that bitcoins are worth something. You know, this is a we know it's all imaginary. There's no substance behind it other than the government's ability to tax us, and yet we all accept it as though it's money. This is not something that can be compared to any portion of world history ever. You know, gold coins and silver coins, even when the Romans issued them, that's, that was the basis of trust. There was no counterparty risk. The fall of the Roman Empire was preceded in monetary terms by a debasement of the coin, where they took, the, took a little gold out, took a little more gold out, took the silver out, took a little more silver out, and you could actually see your money eroding in value, to the point that finally people said, okay, we don't want that anymore, and the empire collapsed. Same thing effectively happened to Great Britain. Same thing effectively happened to Spain. Debt is the fatal disease of republics. And, and I'm a, I fear for the one that we live in, because I do believe it's the greatest nation on ever graced the earth. So you're saying this is going to be even bigger, because our, our currency is a fiat currency. It's not based on gold today. And therefore, yeah. But that, that also means that if there's no limit, physical limitation on having it backed by gold, it can go much, much higher before it starts to go down. Correct. And, you know, this is something when I was a kid, I would take solace in the fact that, that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing had a, a single wire printing machine so that they were limited in the amount of paper that they could actually print. It's only with the advent of electronic currency now that the concept of, you know, finite limits due to any production limitations, even Mr. Ben Bernanke earned his nickname, Helicopter Ben, as a in answering that question, we'll just turn on the printing presses and drop the money in by helicopter with an electronic method of moving money and electronic method of creating money. The only thing that you could run out of would be zeros. And as long as you have zeros to enter, then you can inflate the currency. You're right, ad infinitum. You know, my $10 wage or $16 wage today could be $160 wage 20 years from now. And again, this won't hurt the generation that's currently working. And, and paying taxes and incurring debt and paying with dollars that are worth less. This only hurts the savers, people that saved money over the last 30 years and now count on this pile of money to last them the next 30. So you're saying we're going to go the direction of uh, Zimbabwe or Argentina no. that has you know, huge inflation? No. Yeah, and I know a lot of people predicted that. You know, if you all through the financial crisis, I heard these cries of you know hyperinflation and sell all your stocks and we have five thousand Dow and five thousand gold. And, and in harsh reality, uh, the dollar being in the position that it's in has uh, a luxury that those other countries you mentioned never had, nor did the Weimar Republic. You know, no one would accept. Uh, a Zimbabwe dollar outside of Zimbabwe. It was only good in that one place. And no one outside of Zimbabwe gathered them up and saved them and held on to them, nor did they trade with their neighbors using these as a currency unit. As long as people do that with the dollar, that represents sort of an unregistered demand for money. And the Fed can create as much as it needs to or doesn't need to uh, based on not only the demand that we present to it, but the demand that the rest of the world presents to it. So while I don't see hyperinflation, but slow, steady, insidious inflation that eats away at, at purchasing power, that is unquestionable the future for me. Um, you know, I think you'll just see input costs rising, wage costs rising, and anything that you buy that isn't imported cheaply uh, will suddenly cost more. So uh, some people are saying that the days of the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency are numbered. Uh, you're already seeing 
uh, China trading in gold and maybe oil and Iran is trading in euros and around the edges, the big holders of dollars are getting nervous about that. Do you see eventually that the U.S. dollar will not be the U.S. the world reserve currency? Eventually is a big word. And yes, you know, I've heard all of these if scenarios. If, yes, I agree. If China starts a, a convertible currency that the rest of the world will accept, yes, China is buying gold by the ton, by the metric ton, at a rate unseen ever in history. And they're the ones that have uh, driven it up to these levels and are, are creating the demand shortages between physical metal and uh, I'll owe you gold in the form of a contract or an option or a future. So they're buying physical metal, putting it on boats and planes and trains, and actually taking it to China. So this is really... Um, a move, many view, as to back their currency with gold so as to emerge as a threat to the dollar. You know, this is decades at best out. Um, the reality is that even if you looked at the Chinese yuan as a, as a method of payment or storage, it comprises about 1.4% of world transactions. And yes, that's a doubling from last year. But the boys at Dollar Inc. aren't worried at all when, we, you know, we have like 80% market share. So, yes, China may emerge at some point, I think 20 years minimum, uh, as, a, as a new currency. But for now, being not convertible, you know, not a reliable store of wealth, I don't see the serious money of the world investing their cash in, in Chinese yuan. Or is there any other, people have talked about a basket of currencies, including gold as an alternative to the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency? You know, maybe I'm jaded, Jordan. I've been around this game a long time, but I remember in the mid-'90s when the, all the talk was about European Union and the euro and how the euro was going to be the credible threat to the dollar, how the GDP of Europe was greater than that of the United States, and it certainly is now, and the euro's been in existence this entire time, and it hasn't even emerged as a credible threat to the dollar. Look at the, the numbers that second place, certainly, uh, but... You know, look at the effort put behind the euro, and you recognize quickly that China's going to have to really redouble and triple its efforts if it ever hopes to become a world currency. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Gauze. Uh, he's a currency and Federal Reserve uh, expert uh, talking about all these different issues. Um, we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are the challenges of economic uncertainty and the pressures of global competition wreaking havoc on your company's strategy? To succeed in today's fast-paced, high-tech business landscape, companies must continually adapt, 
while driving innovation and exploiting new opportunities. Listen for Quantum Business Insights with host Olivia Parr-Rudd. Our guests will include thought leaders from around the world discussing and exploring the concepts that will move companies forward in these uncertain times. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Gauze. He's an expert on currencies, the Federal Reserve, the federal budget, uh, gold, all kinds of things we've been talking about. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Uh, thank you, Jordan. So let's talk about uh, reacting to all things you've mentioned as a consumer. We've talked about the investor a little bit. Um, okay. how, how should a consumer, understanding everything you've talked about, react in the future? Should he prepare for rising prices or and buy things in anticipation of that? How should consumers yeah. respond to this? Yeah, that's the, you know, the first the first thing that a consumer can do is to build a pantry of commonly used items and track so that you know exactly what you pay per unit, per ounce, per pound, per gallon, what have you. So, take the time to analyze what your family uses and then and again, I'm I'm referring to these continually used products, obviously paper goods and, you know, all the things that you can store without a great deal of energy. Uh and Purchase them in bulk if you have to, but build a pantry of them so that you have a store and can track rising prices so that you're not forced to pay whatever the market is demanding at that particular moment uh, for these products. Because obviously, as hard input costs rise, there are going to be shortages in pocket areas, and you want to be able to go a month or so without having to purchase something that your family uses every day. So that's that's first and foremost. That's not giving any long-term protection. If you get for a month, it's not going to really solve the long-term issue. And a lot of these things are perishable, food and gas. You can't have a storehouse of fresh tomatoes or something. So that's that's not going to help that much. It's only the goods that, that, again, the staple goods, where input costs are going to be a problem. And they certainly are. These shortages will result in price spikes, but then normality will return to the market after the, the shortages are dealt with. And this will, this will have to do with transportation issues and things of that nature, delivery issues. So the ability to withstand short-term price shocks without being forced to expend additional resources as a consumer and to instead pull from your stores and wait out any short periods of shortages or rising prices, or spiking prices, I should say, uh, that's probably the most helpful thing a consumer can do, and try to produce more and be less of a consumer. So how about on the debt-to-savings ratio? You've been saying that debtors have been subsidized and savers have been punished. It seems like that will continue. So that means you should borrow more and save less. And it's, it's 
versus it seems, you know, here's the three worst things that you could do going forward. And this is going to sound absolutely crazy. Okay, so the three worst things are, one, pay off your long-term debt early. Two, save your money. And three, live debt-free. These are the things that sort of were drilled into our heads as kids, the three things that we should be doing. And instead, by doing all three of them, you're almost guaranteeing that inflation is going to erode your purchasing power. So you're saying you should do the opposite? Sad but true. You know, <laughs> people ask me if uh, I have a, a big lump sum. Should I make a huge down payment to buy my house? My answer is no. You should take a government-subsidized low-interest rate mortgage because if you wait five years, you'll be able to put your money in a treasury bill and earn more interest than you're paying on your mortgage. Uh, most certainly, I see interest rates rising in the future, and as they do, having long-term debt locked in at a low interest rate uh, gives you a position that will be quite enviable as folks are out there trying to get a, an 8 or 9 or 10% mortgage, and you're locked in for 30 years at 4 or 4.5, wherever the rates are now. So, so to pay saying, off that mortgage... As an investor, you, you, you do not want to be going into long-term bonds now if it, you see interest rates rising. That's right. You don't want to be on that other side. You don't want to be the guy that's loaning the money to somebody for 30 years and, and only getting, you know, 3 or 4% interest. We're clearly at the bottom of that cycle, and we're artificially there because of the activity of the Fed. Remember, that's how they do their quantitative easing, folks. They buy debt instruments, in this case, 30-year treasury bills, uh, bonds, rather, and drive down the long-term interest rate. Well, that's artificial. It's manipulative. And when they exit the market, then the market reacts by going back to the level before uh, the manipulation. And, and that's, unfortunately, um, if you've paid off your mortgage or, or if you've made a huge down payment or if you're, well, anyway, debt can be a blessing in this environment. So, yes, uh, debt incurred for the proper thing. I'm not saying take your credit card out and go on a vacation, but debt incurred in the name of productivity. You know, if you can increase your business by locking up some long-term money at favorable rates and improve your business environment or your home environment, if you can save money by locking up some long-term debt and buying a particular energy-efficient oven, whatever, you know, makes sense over the long term, then most certainly you should do it. Living debt-free, I think uh, you're not taking advantage of what everyone else is, which is subsidized low interest rates. The Federal Reserve says they're tapering quantitative easing, and they've been every month cutting back a little bit. By the fall, they'll pretty much be out of that business, and they'll have tapered completely, and the economy will be on its own. So you're saying you well, that's a healthy thing. I don't buy that. <laughs> I, uh, I, if you look at the Federal Reserve's H-41 balance sheet, we have two problems there. Problem one, not the most obvious, is that I don't see the tapering. Uh, you know, the monthly bond purchases exceed the levels that they're talking about, no matter how you cast back the average. I, I mean, even on a 12-month moving average right now, they're still doing over $85 billion a month. So what? where's the taper? I'm, I'm frankly not seeing it. And let's not forget that tapering means that they're going to cease future buying. They're reducing future buying. Current buying still keeping up at a, at a at the same pace, as I said, 12-month moving average, still around $85 billion a month. So, okay, taper means they're going to shave that. So at some point, they said they were going to shave $10 billion, then $10 billion more. We're still waiting for those numbers. Once they do those two, presumably they're going to stop buying bonds at some point. I don't, 
I don't see it. Not any time this year. Not any time next year. Jordan, you can have me back in two years. I bet the Fed will still be buying those bonds because they have no choice in this matter. If they allow interest rates to rise right now, they'll cripple what little bit of a recovery we have going on. So you're saying that even though this is what they're officially saying, that they're tapering and doing $10 billion each less each month and we over that in fact they're not doing it, and Isn't the economy can't stand higher interest rates. They publish a balance sheet at H41 release every week. They'll tell you how many bonds they hold, how many they bought last week, how many they had for the last year, what the maturity schedules are. It's Any journalist worth his salt should just Look at it and say that you prove to themselves. Wait a minute. Why are you guys telling us you're tapering when you're not? And and more importantly, define that for me. Tapering means what? You're going to re- slow the rate of your purchases. That's not tapering anything. You know, in reality, the Fed should be completely out of the market for them to have no market influence. So it's my belief they're going to continue to influence interest rates. In fact, the entire uh, federal budget deficit will be monetized by the Federal Reserve over the coming year so as to eliminate that crowding out effect that we all taught, were learned or taught in economics. You know, the government borrows too much, it crowds out private business. There's no such a thing anymore. We have about a minute left. Why don't you kind of sum up all of what we've talked about in the last hour and what the impacts are going to be going forward to the winners and losers following your strategy versus not following your strategy? Well, you know, the the Fed made a decision at the uh, height of this crisis in 2007, uh, either A, let the economy go into a deflationary depression as it did in the 1920s and uh, late 20s and 30s, or uh, rescue it with a quantitative easing, which is a pretty tried-and-true maneuver. They did a fairly good job of keeping the economy from sinking into the mire, but at the same time, they created a potential problem in the future, which I believe is inflation. It will affect savers and not debtors, and obviously uh, folks that are just starting work and things of that nature. They'll have less of an impact than the person who's already worked the last 30 years. Those folks should put a hedge in place against this inflation. I think the ideal hedge is American-made gold and silver coin from the U.S. Mint. I don't make it. I just like it. I don't own it all. I just try to buy it. So no matter where you get it, get it. Gold and silver coins made by the U.S. Mint in high grades, things no one else can own. You'll be far better off than if you do nothing at all to hedge that um, risk. And your website for that is usgoldcoins.com, is that correct? Right, that's our commercial side in business 30 years. If you'd like more information and you just want to learn more, which <laughs> you should definitely do, educate yourself on the subject, folks. Go to uh, andygoss.com or give us a call and, and mention that you heard it on Jordan's show. You know, I have three audio CDs. They're like a half hour, 40 minutes each, and goes into a different component. One deals just with the Federal Reserve. One deals just with the definition of money. And one deals with how to protect your wealth, how to buy gold and silver American coins. You can get all three of them by just calling our 800 number. Just mention Jordan's name and they'll be free of charge. 800-468-2646. Again, make sure you mention Money Answer Show or Jordan Goodman, and we'll send you these audio CDs absolutely free. Educate yourself. Well, thanks so much, Andy. It's been quite provocative. A lot of interesting ideas for people to think about. You've been a great guest on the Money Answer Show. Thanks again. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.
And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 